Welcome to a special streaming catch-up show of Yay, Nay or Ma, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I am your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. And over the last couple of days, I've realised a couple of things. One, my shows recently have been getting excessively long partly that's due to be catching up with all the streaming stuff that i wanted to catch up on and your various sales and offers allow me to rent a lot more films than i usually do partly that's due to a lot of the stuff i watched earlier in the year finally coming out legally i mean either i watched it a festival i watched it pirated in order to include it in my oscar deliberations and now it's officially out the reviews get released but when i've only got one thing to record about i tend to go on for a little bit of time so those reviews get long and when they put in shows and there's a lot of them in the shows they get very very long so my shows recently have been arguably too long And the other thing I realised is that despite having to fit things in and around the Euro 2020 football tournament a year late, I actually have quite a few things I've managed to fit in. And I haven't even started to watch the cinematic releases this weekend. So I thought it would be a good idea to clear the decks a little bit and release a show with the five streaming films I've already watched and that will allow me to release a somewhat reasonably length show when I finally do get around to the three cinematic films I wanted to watch. And it shocks me how much I've managed to see in and around the Euro 2020 football. I mean, I've had to pick and choose occasionally a a game to miss, but I've usually managed to fit it in. I mean, ironically, the one game I've actively missed at Euro 2020 was the one game where something horrifically dramatic happened. I missed the Denmark-Finland game where Christian Eriksen collapsed because I was away watching Ellie and Abby and Ellie's dead aunt. So, uh, yeah, and I'm going to have to miss Netherlands-Macedonia in a couple of days as well, which I'm honestly not too bothered about because that's going to be an absolute tonking. But 
despite having to fit things around the football, I have managed to watch a lot of things. So already in the can, I have reviews of the streaming films, Flashback, the mind-bending sci-fi film, and Preparations to be Together for an Unknown Period of Time, the psychological thriller from Hungary, which got submitted to the Oscars this year, and on Netflix, I've managed to see the Chinese animated film Wish Dragon, the literal Lifetime movie, Believe Me, The Abduction of Lisa McVeigh, and the big-budget disaster-slash-sci-fi movie Awake. So, with five reviews for you and no cinematic entries for you in this particular episode we'll just get straight on with this watch at home flashback is a canadian sci-fi thriller which was originally titled and i believe is still titled in some regions the education of frederick fitzell which is an unhelpfully unwieldy title but equally, Flashback is kind of a, an unhelpfully generic title, but either way, you should be able to find Flashback, which stars Dylan O'Brien as a man who is stuck in a boring, repetitive job. Yes, he has an attractive young wife in Hannah Gross, but he feels like his life is going nowhere. One day, metaphor alert he goes the wrong way down a one-way alley and has an uncomfortable encounter which sparks some memories he had long suppressed or forgotten or some combination thereof after this encounter he starts remembering for the first time in a very long time his high school days where he was drawn into the orbit of the school's bad boy drug dealer, Emery Cohen. And particularly, he was drawn into the orbit of Emery Cohen's girlfriend, Micah Monroe, who he, of course, had a massive crush on. And they used to hang out together and take this particular drug, Mercury, together. But until this very moment, he had long forgotten that Micah Monroe even existed. And when he tries to remember, tries to look her up, she's nowhere to be found, and nobody seems to remember her. So, what happened to Micah Monroe? Why can't I remember her? And what the fuck was that drug we were taking the whole time back when I was in high school? And that's basically how flashback plays out. And there are two major problems with Flashback. The first is not Flashback's fault, and that is the fact that Flashback has a lot of parallels to the mind-bending sci-fi film that was already out this year, Synchronic. There are quite a few parallels, and it's got quite a few similar themes and ideas. Synchronic is not a great film, but it's a better film than Flashback, 
And that is an issue, but it is not necessarily Flashback's fault. What is Flashback's fault is that this is a film which thinks it is way, way cleverer than it actually is. The film has been made in a very fractured, a deliberately fractured way, with lots of flashbacks, lots of intercussing between the past and the present, or is it alternative dimensions? Is it possibilities of what's happened? Did this actually happen? But it's jumping about in time, it's jumping about in place. Everything is jumbled together and scattered and this is done for even the most basic parts of exposition and then when we start to uncover the mechanics of this film the ideas behind this film the plot of this film it turns out to be based around the kind of existentialism that stoned teenagers come up with I mean, a lot of the sentences that Micah Monroe says towards the end of this film might as well have man at the end of them. As in, what if time didn't exist, man? I mean, that's basically what it comes down to. There's also a speech, arguably a couple of speeches, said by Micah Monroe, which seem to be deliberately and overtly inspired by that famous Rutger Hauer speech at the end of Blade Runner. You know, I have seen explosions off the belt of Orion, all that kind of stuff. You know, the, the existentialism, the expansiveness of the world, of the universe, of consciousness, that is what writer-director Christopher McBride, through the mouth of Michael Monroe, is trying to say. And it just doesn't work. And the plot also has a somewhat juvenile goal in mind. It seems to say that for at least some of the characters in this film, being completely adrift in a world totally devoid of consequences is actually something to aspire to, is actually something to pursue. But that isn't living. Yes, it might be fun, it might be mind-expanding in more ways than one, but a world without consequences, a world that doesn't have any level of causality to it, that isn't living, that isn't life, that isn't experience, that's just drifting. And for certain characters in this film, that seems to be the goal, that seems to be the happy ending they were searching for. And I'm not entirely sure I buy that. I'm not entirely sure I support that. And even if I did, I'm not 100% sure how we even got there. Because the exposition is so deliberately fractured and so, quote-unquote, clever by chopping and changing and editing things together in really, quote-unquote, clever ways. Because the exposition, what little exposition there is, in that, is done in that way, I'm not 100% sure what the point of this was, what the goal was, how things end up for certain characters. So it's 
not nearly as clever as it thinks it is. It's got a very stoned teenager view of philosophy, particularly existentialism. You know, what is the existence of right here, right now? What is this place, this time? What does it mean? What does it do? I mean, that's essentially what we're, we're talking about. It's not very good. It's certainly not as good as Synchronic, which I do recommend over this. And yes, the performances are good enough. I mean, Dylan O'Brien, Michael Monroe and Emery Cohen are all actors I've liked and admired in previous work. I mean, most recently, Dylan O'Brien was in Love and Monsters, which I actually really liked. So, yeah, decent enough acting, so I don't think it's a complete wash. But I don't think it's worth paying for. If you see it for free on Netflix or on your Sky Cinema subscription or whatever, you'll probably have a decent enough time watching it. But, yeah, Flashback is a bit of a mess, quite frankly. And it's not such a mess that I say it's an A, but for me, Flashback, or, if you find it this way, The Education of Frederick Fitzell, is a very, very low mess. Next up on the streaming side of things is the Hungarian film with the unwieldy title of Preparations to be Together for an Unknown Period of Time. Unlike Flashback, I don't think you'll have any difficulty finding this film. This is the film that Hungary submitted to this year's International Film Oscar competition after premiering at the 2020 Venice Film Festival. And this was actually considered something of a contender to get nominated for the International Film Oscar, but in the end it didn't even make the 10 film long list. So, yes, it's a film with a little bit of prestige, a little bit of backing to it, despite the fact this is writer-director Lily Horvat's second feature film. The first one didn't do much and wasn't released outside its native Hungary, but yeah, Lily Horvat managed to get this into Venice and get this submitted to the Oscars. And eventually it got released here in the UK at a premium price on Curzon Home Cinema, and I just waited for it to be cheaper and available more widely through streaming, which it now has, so I rented it on that bank holiday sale and watched it this week. It tells the story of a 40-year-old neurosurgeon, played by Natasha Stork, who meets a fellow Hungarian brain surgeon at a conference in the United States and instantly drops everything and moves from her prestigious job in New Jersey back to a dingy hospital in Budapest in order to spark a relationship with this man, this wonderful doctor she met at this medical conference in the United States. So she drops everything in order to follow this other brain surgeon, Victor Bodo, to Budapest. But when Natasha Stork meets up with Victor Bodo and confronts him outside the hospital at which he works, he says to her, I'm sorry, I don't know who the hell you are, what are you saying, we didn't have any kind of relationship in this medical conference in the States, 
get away from me, you crazy woman, essentially. So, what does this mean? Natasha Stork has given up a prestigious, well-paid career in the States in order to come back to her native Hungary, where the hospitals are decrepit, things can only get done through bribery, and the only apartment she can find is this crumbling, unfurnished dump. But she decides to stick it out and try and get her way into the life of the objects of her affection, Victor Bodo, anyway. So can she make it work? And what is even going on? Is this a crazy woman, or is she mistaken in some way? What is happening? So I really wasn't sure what kind of film preparations to be together for an unknown period of time would be. Is this kind of a Lady Vanishes type of plotline where Victor Bodo and Natasha Stork did have a relationship in the States, but for some reason Victor Bodo is denying it ever happened? Is this kind of a fatal attraction kind of thing where there was a relationship in the States, but now Natasha Stork has shown up in Budapest? Victor Bodo is denying it ever happened in order to just get rid of this crazy woman. Is this kind of a psycho or a beautiful mind kind of story where Natasha Stork is just crazy and made the whole thing up and is so crazy she's travelled halfway around the world in order to meet up with this man who she thinks she's had a relationship with and she thinks she's in love with? It could have been so many different things. And through a lot of the course of this film, you could go many different ways. I mean, there are interpretations where there is something going on between these two people. There are interpretations where Natasha Stork is just absolutely crazy and Victor Bodo is just running away scared. There's even interpretations where Victor Bodo just isn't there for certain scenes. There's certain scenes where I was noticing that Victor Bodo and Natasha Stork are the only two people on screen. So, is Victor Bodo there, or is it all in Natasha Stork's mind? It's that kind of film, where everything is up for debate, everything is questionable. And it's very interesting that we only really see things from Natasha Stork's point of view. We are seeing it from within her own perspective. So we don't know if Victor Bodo did have a relationship with her in America or not. As I said, in certain places, we're not even sure that Victor Bodo is even there. But we are always seeing it from her perspective, from her point of view. And she is you know, an intelligent woman. I mean, she is a literal brain surgeon and a very successful, very good brain surgeon to the extent that she managed to get herself a very prestigious job in the United States. So she's highly intelligent, but it's also entirely possible she's absolutely nuts. And she knows that herself, which is one thing I really appreciate about this film, is the fact that we do have voiceovers from Natasha Stork throughout the course of this film. And it is gradually confirmed 
throughout the course of the film, that these voiceovers are actually part of a therapy session or therapy sessions that Natasha Stork is having with somebody who also works in this dingy hospital in Budapest, which she has blown up her life in order to work at. So she herself is aware of the fact that she might well be crazy, she might well be making it up, and she has gone to a therapist in order to try and figure things out. And I do like that fact. I mean, it, it does allow us to have perspective on the inner mind, the inner monologue of Natasha Stork. I mean, she says the things that would be implied in this scenario. You know, I was so single-minded on my career, I didn't really have a time for relationships, so now this relationship has a potential of starting, I'm going to do everything I can to make it work. And did I want it so much that I made it up is an actual line of dialogue in this film, which actually gets repeated a couple of times. So I like the fact that the psychological damage, the pursuit of perfection that Natasha Stork has dedicated her life to Maybe it has made her crazy, and she is aware of the fact it might well have made her crazy. There are misunderstandings and cross-purposes along the way. I mean, the classic trope of the romantic comedy of the misunderstanding, oh no, he's with another woman. And you know, that plays out in exactly the way you've seen it in dozens of other romantic films. I saw that coming a mile off. And I do think that there are a couple of issues with the end. I think eventually a little bit too much exposition is given, a little bit too much explanation at a certain point exactly what happened in this medical conference in the United States is revealed. And honestly, I don't think it needed to be quite so overt, quite so blunt. I think I would have preferred a little bit more ambiguity of the specifics of the event. And then the point at which the film ends, it is ambiguous, but in my mind, ambiguous to a fault. There are major major questions which need to be addressed and they are not being addressed and yes there are lots of potential directions that the life of Natasha Stork could go in by the end of the film but I'm not 100% sure I know where it's going and if any of those is a quote-unquote happy ending there are major questions about the interpersonal relationships not just between Natasha Stork and Victor Bodo, but other people as well, which are not addressed, are not approached by the end of the film. So I would have liked to see that addressed a little more, and I would have liked to see the specifics of the US Medical Conference explored a little less. So a mixed bag towards the end. But overall, I think preparations to be together for an unknown period of time is an interesting character study of a woman who has dedicated herself so single-mindedly to a goal that things have got lost along the way. 
and trying to find those things again causes problems in and of itself. So, yeah, I think it's an interesting little psychological thriller. I think it's very well acted by both Natasha Stork and Victor Bodo. I think it's well directed by Lily Horvat, the way that things are intercut in such a way that these therapy sessions keep commenting upon and adding texture to the visuals we are seeing. I think there's a lot going on here, a lot to admire here. And I did basically like this film. If you are into your art house foreign language cinema, then I think there's something interesting here. And for me, preparations to be together for an unknown period of time from Hungary is a solid art house math. Netflix and chill. Wish Dragon is a Chinese animated film, or, well, it's a Chinese-American co-production. I think Sony Animation puts some money into it, and the director of this film is an American, Chris Applehands, who's worked on American animated features in the past, but this is his first directorial effort. So, American money and an American director, but other than that, this seems to have largely been done by a Chinese company called Beijing Sparkle Roll Media, which is owned by Jackie Chan. And Jackie Chan voices the dragon in the Chinese dub of this film. In the American dub, the dragon is voiced by John Cho, which is a good enough piece of casting, I guess, even though he's Korean. This is one of those films which has an entirely ethnically appropriate voice cast. Everybody's from East Asia. See, it's not that hard, Kubo and the Two Strings, but anyway. Wish Dragon is made in China and set in China and very much based around Chinese mythology, where a teenage boy, Din, is struggling to make ends meet, struggling to make his single mother proud, but all he really wants to do is reconnect with his childhood female best friend who moved away when he was 10 and her father became this immensely powerful rich businessman in the big city. So she is now way out of his league and they haven't spoken to each other for about a decade. But all he wants to do is save up enough money so he can get his childhood best friend a birthday present. And he's doing this by being a food delivery guy on his scooter and at one of his food delivery stops he acquires a little jade teapot and when he holds the teapot and makes a wish a gigantic pink wish dragon voiced by john cho comes out of this jade teapot and says i will grant you three wishes Get on with it so I can then ascend to heaven. So, Din tries to make his three wishes, tries to reconnect with his childhood best friend, tries to get this wish dragon to 
heaven where he wants to go. But all the while he is being pursued by three thugs who want the teapot and the wishes that entails for themselves, or rather for their boss. So can young Din reconnect with his childhood best friend, keep out of the grip of these goons, and help this wish dragon ascend to heaven? This is nothing we haven't seen before. Specifically, this is one film we have seen before. This is Aladdin. It's very, very much a rip-off of Aladdin, the Disney version of Aladdin. I mean, even the character is named Din, which I've only just realised having just started recording this now, but the character is named Din. How much more direct do you need? I mean, yes, John Cho does the oh, I am the wish dragon, I shall grant you your wishes. You, know, you obviously just want piles and piles of gold, don't you? Let's just give you all this gold so I can go and ascend off into heaven. I mean, all the peasants that have owned my teapot in the past, that's all they've wanted. I mean, and this is a dragon who has been in this teapot for thousands of years. So for him, it's piles of gold and palanquins, not jumbo jets and iPhones. So he just doesn't understand the modern world, which leads into this fish-out-of-water attitude, you know, the wonders and the perils of the modern world for this ancient Chinese entity. You know, and how you relate to the world, how you relate to women in the dim and distant past of China is very different to how you relate to the world and you relate to women now. The quote-unquote romance which is suggested by this ancient wish dragon is not at all the kind of romance that works in the modern day. And there's lots of chalk and cheese stuff, lots of learning about the modern world, all this kind of stuff. Basically everything we've seen before, but very, very much in the same framework as Aladdin. I am going to use these wishes to get closer to the girl I like. I'm going to pretend to be fabulously wealthy because that's obviously the only way this rich girl will even notice me. So I have to pretend to be something I am not. And I have to maintain that illusion, otherwise she just won't like me anymore. Despite the fact that these were best friends when they were 10. The spunky no-nonsense, irreverent 10-year-old girl who helps out this bullied 10-year-old neighbour with the single mother, which is still a very big deal in China. You know, the ideas of family, of having a complete family unit rather than just being a single parent. It's clear that if he did just show up in jeans and a T-shirt as, you know, my childhood friend Din it would be okay. But no, I need to pretend to be a prince. I need to pretend to be this rich guy in a Lamborghini. Otherwise, she won't notice me. And yeah, it, it, it plays out exactly how you expect it to play out because we've already seen it play out in Aladdin. It's really not trying too hard to hide it. The only addition to the Aladdin story, or, you know, Disney's Aladdin story, are these three goons who are 
always after Din and after his magic teapot. I mean, one very tall, one very short, and one who always, always has his hands in his pockets. And this is going to be an obscure reference, and I'm wondering how many of my listeners will get this reference. But because the lead goon always has his hands in his pockets, and in the credits he is called Pockets, even though I don't think he's ever called that name in the film, but because he's always got his hands in his pockets, it really reminded me of the wrestler Orange Cassidy. And you know, seeing that play out and how you can get a lot of expression out of somebody's legs. I mean, there are quite a few action scenes, you know, fight scenes, martial arts scenes in this film. Done very, very well. And I mean, I do wonder how much of a direct influence Jackie Chan was on these fight scenes because the kind of elastic, impressive, mildly comedic action scenes which we have in this film. That is exactly the kind of stuff that Jackie Chan was doing in his prime. I mean, his kind of elastic, elaborate kung fu was made for the animated form. So, I don't know, maybe that's something that Jackie Chan deliberately put into this film. But it is here, and it is done very, very well. I mean, the fight scenes are excellent. They're a lot of fun. And in general, this film is a lot of fun, even if it is stuff we have 100% seen done before. It's entertaining enough. It's interesting visually enough. The plotline has no surprises in it. I mean, who the ultimate villain turns out to be is revealed very early in the film. It's exactly who I expected it to be. I don't really see the need to spoil that, but... Yeah, it's completely by the numbers, everything you expect to happen. And it's perfectly fine. It's solid, it's entertaining. I enjoyed myself a lot, but it's just so unoriginal that I can't embrace it warmly. But for whatever it's worth, Wish Dragon on Netflix is a solid, entertaining math. So earlier this week, I was in one of those situations where I wanted to wait up for the cat to come in because there were thunderstorms scheduled overnight. So I wanted to make sure the cat came in safely out of the rain and out of the orbit of the other cat in the neighbourhood who she occasionally has fights with. So I wanted something to just pass the time, something relatively brainless that I could watch late at night without really concentrating on it. So I settled on, believe me, the abduction of Lisa McVeigh. This is a literal Lifetime movie. It's a TV movie produced in Canada in 2018, which premiered in the States on the Lifetime channel. And in Canada, it premiered on the Showcase channel and actually won some awards in the TV Movie Awards in Canada in 2018. But 
yeah, it's a TV movie. It's a true crime, somewhat exploitative TV movie from 2018, which randomly showed up on Netflix this month. There's some really random shit which ends up on Netflix sometime. The best I can figure out is the reason, believe me, the abduction of Lisa McVeigh has ended up on Netflix this month, is the star of this film, Katie Douglas, is currently one of the leading cast, one of the major supporting characters in the Netflix TV show Ginny and Georgia. It's a a mother and daughter kind of thing, a little bit like the Gilmore Girls, only with more lesbianism and murder, but... Ginny and Georgia seems to be that kind of thing. And Katie Douglas is, you know, the kid's best friend. So she's got a major role in that. And maybe that's why three or four years down the line, this TV movie has ended up on Netflix. But it looked like a very, very generic, somewhat exploitative, true crime TV movie. But I was intrigued nonetheless. It tells the true story of Lisa McVeigh, as played by Katie Douglas, who in 1984 was a 17-year-old living in Tampa, Florida, when she was abducted off the streets. Late at night, you know, three o'clock in the morning, she was cycling home from her job at a donut shop, and she was abducted off the streets. And she was then persistently raped over the next two or three days. But eventually, she persuaded the man who abducted her, Bobby Joe Long, as played in the film by Rossif Sutherland, to let her go. And when she went home to her grandmother's house, where she was living at the time, Nobody believed her. Nobody believed that A, she had been abducted, and B, she had persuaded the guy to let her go. Until somebody did. A local police detective, played by David James Elliott, does believe her. Because, you see, there is a serial killer who is currently active in the Tampa area, And there are some similarities between the abduction of Lisa McVeigh and the cases that they're already investigating. So, this detective finally does believe her, and this 17-year-old girl, this incredibly brave 17-year-old girl, helps bring down this serial killer, Bobby Joe Long. And that's basically all there is to this film. There is no other reason why this film has just randomly and suddenly shown up on Netflix three or four years later. It's exactly what you expect it to be. This is a TV movie in every sense of that term. The production values are very, very low. The exposition, the emotional journey of all the characters in the film are bluntly stated. The score is bombastic and abrasive, and there is zero subtlety in this film at all. It's cheap, it's exploitative, and it's sometimes rather inexpertly put together. I mean, 
flashbacks to Lisa McVeigh's traumatic childhood are just dumped in seemingly randomly throughout the course of the film. It's not done very well at all. But it is an absolutely fascinating story. This young woman, Lisa McVeigh, was remarkable and is remarkable. Managing to understand the psychology of the man who had abducted her and is repeatedly raping her, managing to understand his psychology and manipulate him in such a way that he does feel comfortable in letting her go. He is persuaded that this is the right thing to do, despite the fact he has killed people in the past and is probably going to kill people in the future. Understanding the psychology of that and working out how to do it is extraordinary. Using her cunning, using her understanding to work on the mind of this guy, because unfortunately, Lisa McVeigh already had first hand experiences of rapists. Her mother, her literal trailer trash mother, had dumped Lisa McVeigh on her grandmother. And her grandmother's boyfriend was repeatedly raping Lisa McVeigh, even before she was abducted by the serial killer Bobby Joe Long. So, unfortunately, she understood rapists, she had experience of rapists, and she knew how to manipulate this guy into letting her go. And using her cunning and her intelligence in this way is really impressive and really remarkable to see and to think about. And telling a tale of this brave, extraordinary young woman who turned into... Yeah, well, I'm just going to say, spoilers, I guess, for the end of the film, but it is based on real life. Eventually, Lisa McVeigh became a sheriff's deputy and is still active in the sex crimes unit of the Tampa County Sheriff's Department, or at least was when this film was made in 2018. And, yeah, making something out of your life with such a bad start in life, and using the natural cunning, the natural intelligence, it's a remarkable story, and the achievements both in escaping and of what she's done since, of Lisa McVeigh, are worth celebrating, are worth exploring. But at the end of the day, this is a very, very exploitative, cheap film. According to the Wikipedia page, this did have a cinematic release in Tampa, Florida, before it premiered on television, at which Lisa McVeigh Noland was present. And, I mean, that's got to have been a, a very strange experience watching this film about you being raped but anyway she did apparently attend and she is currently or was in 2018 a sheriff's deputy in tampa florida so yeah celebrating her in that way is good but doing it in this exploitative cheap way really isn't so yeah, I mean, it is what it is. It is exactly what I expected it to be, and not an especially well-produced or well-thought-out example of this kind of film. 
it's an extraordinary story which i think needs to be told in some format i mean maybe a somewhat less exploitative format but whatever it is available and for what it is it's adequate i guess so yeah believe me the abduction of lisa mcveigh is a solid for the genre meh on netflix and the last netflix film i want to talk about in this particular relatively short show is one of the bigger netflix releases over the last couple of weeks and that is the sci-fi disaster movie awake which has a really fascinating premise which i'm not sure i've ever seen before awake sets up the unusual premise that suddenly around the world all electronics fail everything that has a microchip in it suddenly fails and that includes almost all cars almost all hospital equipment pretty much everything that needs electricity nowadays has a microchip in it and when all the microchips fail the world goes into chaos which is only exacerbated by the fact that also suddenly nobody in the world can sleep and as they repeatedly go into throughout the course of this film after only two or three days of no sleep you essentially go psychotic so the world is full of psychotic people and no technology and through this apocalyptic hellscape a former soldier former drug addict suffering from ptsd gina rodriguez is trying to help her children survive her teenage son lucius hoyos and her 10 year old daughter played by ariana greenblatt who we recently saw in love and monsters but she this 10 year old girl is seemingly one of only two people in the world who can actually sleep so suddenly she is the most important girl in the world and gina rodriguez is reluctantly taking ariana greenblatt her daughter to a facility a military facility run by a former military psychiatrist she knows played by jennifer jason lee who is investigating this phenomena and maybe is trying to find a cure but gina rodriguez knows that jennifer jason lee is not to be trusted so is conflicted about balancing the safety of her 10 year old daughter and the survival of the entire planet so this family goes along a journey trying to find a cure trying to get ariana greenblatt to this military facility and along the way meets various people including somewhat crazy preacher barry papper escaped convict shamir anderson and military doctor gil bellows so can ariana greenblatt and her mysterious ability to sleep be transmissible and can the world survive this unusual apocalypse uh yes it can but in a really really dumb way 
Um, there's a mixture here. I mean, the setup of this film is clever. I've never seen this particular version of the apocalypse before, and it does weirdly along the way find some time for some socio-political commentary. I mean, there is talk along the way of this former military psychiatrist played by Jennifer Jason Lee and how she used sleep deprivation as a torture technique. So there's you know, a little bit of socio-political commentary in your mindless blockbuster, and it does add to the reasons why Gina Rodriguez is so reluctant to take her 10-year-old daughter to this military facility. So there, there is some thought gone into this, but not much and not enough. What we have here is a situation where you know, the world goes crazy and instantly everybody goes Lord of the Flies. I mean, when they end up in this church run by preacher Barry Pepper, one of the very first things that one of these parishioners says who's listening to Barry Pepper when they hear that Ariana Greenblatt can sleep, one of the first things that is said is, we should sacrifice her. Hang on a minute, you went from zero to 60 there instantly. And we have certain elements, you know, because no electronics work, no computers work. So one of the first things that Gina Rodriguez does is takes her daughter to a library, her 10-year-old daughter to a library. Look, these are books you need to read, you need to learn. And when we get to this facility, we need to think about what we're doing. And the specific reasons why Gina Rodriguez does want to go to this military facility run by mad scientist Jennifer Jason Lee is, again, actually kind of clever. So there are one or two moments of intelligence here, but it's drowned out by the stupid. When it is eventually revealed, the mechanics for why Ariana Greenblatt can sleep. It was incredibly underwhelming. It was a situation like, well, if that's the solution, that surely means that we didn't need to go through this long, hard, bloody journey. That surely has happened to other people as well. Why are we so concerned about this 10-year-old girl? It was very underwhelming, and the denouement of this film gets incredibly symbolic and incredibly metaphorical. There were other ways in which to do that scene, but they chose the most symbolic way possible, the most spiritual way possible. And it really overrated the pudding. So, a mixed bag. I mean, this is. A lot of post-apocalyptic disaster movies we've seen before. But it gets really crazy really quickly. The conclusion is kind of stupid and way, way too symbolic. The whole family dynamics thing. I mean, this is a woman who has drug issues in the past. So her children are not currently living with her. And her teenage son kind of resents his mother for her issues so there's stuff there uh, and you know having the protagonist of your film the very very first thing she does is goes into the university where she works as a security guard 
and steals pills. I mean, not for taking herself, but she's that's the first thing we do. We think, oh, okay, that's an interesting way to set up your protagonist for this dumb film. So, yeah, I mean, there's one or two mildly clever, mildly interesting things, but overall, this is real, real dumb. And yeah, I, I think on its own terms, as a dumb, disaster, post apocalyptic movie, I guess it's okay. I'm not particularly passionate about this film one way or the other. I mean, this doesn't have particularly good scores on Rotten Tomatoes, but I didn't hate it, but I didn't particularly like it either. I mean, it's fine. It's there. It's diverting. It's a low, dispassionate meh for Awake on Netflix. Coming attractions. So there's my quick catch-up episodes to clear the decks for the future releases coming the priorities at the moment and most of these will be in the next standard episode cinematically we have the big musical in the heights the lockdown created horror in the earth and the 40 years too late CG animated film Dog Tanyon and the Three Musker Hounds. Also got a couple of things on my Sky Cinema box. The Sky Cinema exclusive film The Comeback Trail. And also Richard Linklater's last film Where'd You Go Bernadette has been released onto Sky Cinema. That got a streaming release earlier in the year, but I didn't bother with. But now it's for free. I may as well watch it. Uh, Kate Blanchett is a wife and mother who basically runs away from her family in order to pursue her artistic dreams. So, yeah, I'm not sure the plot is really something that appeals to me, but Richard Linklater directing Kate Blanchett. I will be checking out Where'd You Go, Bernadette, as well. On streaming platforms, I still have on my tablet a rental of the horror film The Stylist. And I'm also going to be getting to the movie-released film Shiva Baby and the Disney Plus film Luca. And on Netflix, the highest priorities I have at the moment are the Black Lives Matter movie Monster the Mexican LGBT historical film Dance of the 41, the Canadian animated film Dog Gone Trouble, and the emotional Kevin Hart starring drama Fatherhood. Although it's perfectly possible that other Netflix films will squeeze their way in somewhere, but that is the priorities for stuff I need to watch at the moment, and I also need to start working on my April foreplay as well. So that's another thing piled onto my list of things to do. But some or all of those movies will be in the next standard episode. I mean, definitely the three cinematic films in The Heights, in The Earth and Dog Tanyon. And until then, which shouldn't be too long, it'll probably be a couple of days before my next episode is released. Until then, all that remains for me to say is this has been Yane Omer, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I've been your host, Colin Gaisley from Bath in the southwest of England. 
email is rawfootagepodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet me at rawfootagepod. And I'll see you next time where I shine a light on cinema, both obvious and obscure. Ah!